Well, good morning. See, that's, that's more for me than you. I just like to know you're awake. and At least at this point, I should probably check back halfway through the sermon and see if you're still awake. <clears throat> so we're working through the book of Titus, and uh, we are going to be finishing up chapter 1 today. So find the book of Titus, and every week for a while, uh, you're going to just come on in. You can go ahead and find Titus, because that's where we'll be. So remember how the passage ended last week. We were looking at the qualifications of the office of elder for the church. And we saw at the very end, after all those qualifications, this, this statement that said, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Well, uh, it, sometimes when we break it up, you miss this stuff. And I want you to understand that this transition is going to go real quick to how do you correct those uh, who are teaching incorrect doctrine, or, or how should we, those who are contradicting sound doctrine. And so uh, as we're looking at this, we're going to see something here. At the heart of this passage today uh, are these two errors that are actually really prevalent in the church and Christian circles today. Uh, and the first one is, is legalism, uh, which is a strict mechanical um, adherence to rules in the hopes of earning righteousness before God. Uh, or to say it another way, uh, legalism is following rules, particularly man-made rules, expecting to earn God-given forgiveness. And then the other threat that we're going to see here is something called license, which is uh, a rebellious, godless disregard for the commandments of God, uh, and they lead to unrepentantly living according to our own sinful, fleshly desires. So, um, in other words, license is professing faith in Jesus verbally, uh, and rejecting Christ and his word and his authority in our lives by the way that we actually live. So license presumes upon God's grace, and legalism tries to earn God's grace. Both fail desperately to understand a gospel view of the grace of God. And so uh, we'll see that, but let's just jump right in. Titus 1, <clears throat> we're going to be starting in verse, verse uh, 10, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are Lord of lords, King of kings, and yet you have created us and taken notice of us. You have provided order to the world that we live in. You've given rain and sun and plants and animals, and if that wasn't enough, you have given your son on the cross so that we might know you and know you intimately and eternally. Open our eyes now to see in your word food for our souls and nourishment for our daily lives. We ask this in the name of the Holy One of Israel, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Amen. 
So the situation here in our text is there are people in the church who are preaching what is not the true gospel. Uh, and these people are called first insubordinate, uh, meaning they are rebellious people who reject all authority. They are secondly called empty talkers. Uh, that's saying that they, they speak these words, they are teaching something, they are saying something, but there is no truth behind those words. It's, it's like if you go and you write a check from a bank account that has no money in it. That's empty words. Uh, finally, they are called deceivers here because they have intentionally caused someone to believe what is not true. They have deceived them. And then we see it identifying them by this overarching term, this, the circumcision party, uh, which you, you might think of as, as Jewish Christians. It's not just Jewish Christians, those, but it's those who taught that circumcision was necessary for salvation. And along with that, they, they taught all sorts of other Jewish traditions. And these Jewish traditions were piling on the backs of the Gentiles, you know, uh, adding, adding up to this heavy yoke that was being placed upon them. So as we think of this, I, I want you to keep in mind, though, that, that honest dialogue uh, for the purpose of understanding truth, for the purpose of, of coming to understand it, is always welcome. When we're seeing these people here, these teachers, it's not about honest dialogue. That was not the motivation of those here. Uh, here, these are, uh, here we know that they're talking about uh, teachers and, uh, uh, who are really called the deceivers in this, in this sense. They are doing it on purpose. And so uh, what we see here are these instructions on what to do with false teachers. And they might not be what we might expect them to be. They, they say to silence them. Uh, that sounds kind of mobster, doesn't it? Um, you see that right there? Uh, they must be silenced. You can almost say that in the Godfather voice. They must be silenced. And, and I'll ask, does it, does it bother you when you hear that? Like that's the way to handle them, silence them. And I, I ask that because as I was thinking about it this week, I began to wonder if our commitment to, to freedom of speech as, as Americans has left us unwilling to ever see a situation where someone should be silenced. Uh, the English poet um, Rudyard Kipling uh, was showing the power of words to change someone's life, the trajectory of their life, when he said that words are the most powerful drug used by mankind. See, as a, a nation, we are typically very cautious of powerful things. You can go into any store as soon as you get out of here today and, and buy medicine, but uh, over the counter, but if you want something more powerful, you need a prescription to go get it. Uh, if you're going to get behind a, a vehicle, a car, you need a license. If you're going to get behind a bus, which is more powerful, you're going to need a better license. And if you're going to get behind a helicopter or an airplane, you're going to need a better license still, which I'm very thankful for. Um, we see warning labels on power tools, but, but around those major, huge electrical systems or, or sources, you see these fences to keep us away from it, not just warning labels. And yet, words we refuse to lock up. It's almost like someone permitting a, a lion to roam through their, their home, convinced that it would never really bring them any harm. And, and, and so, one of the things we need to see here is that there are times and places when words should actually be silenced. And, and here we're told to silence people when words, when their words will lead to those in the church falling away from God or being led away from God. But, but keep note of the context here. You know, you, you can't really control um, TV, for instance. You can't control what's broadcast 
on television, right? But you can certainly go in your home and turn off the TV when what is on the TV will be spiritually harming to to your family. Uh, And that's kind of what we're seeing here is this area, this context. So uh, the fact that they are called teachers in this passage tells us that they were teaching as vocations. Sometimes we forget that. This was a common thing in the era. Uh, in this era, people would go around, they were teachers, someone would give them money, and they'd teach them things. That was the way uh, this stuff, this information was transferred. And so uh, people in general in this era were more interested in how something was taught uh, than they were about the actual content of what was being taught. It's hard to imagine a world where that's the case, right? Except for our world. Um, You know, that's how we approach music. Uh, Yes, this is true in regard to the purity of the lyrics, right? Um, But it's also just true in regard to the shallowness of lyrics. Uh, I'll just give you one point of evidence. You anyone remember that song, Friday? Friday, Friday, getting down on Friday. Uh, most of you know that song, whether you wanted to or not. It went absolutely viral. But do you, do you happen to know what the opening lines, the, the, the depths of these opening lines were? 7 a.m., waking up in the morning, got to be fresh, got to go downstairs, got to have my bowl, got to have cereal. That's the depth of music that has spread across our culture, like viral. And the only reason it did is it had a catchy tune. It was uh, absolutely shallow in regards to the content of that song. And, and that's an absolute ridiculous example. But, but my point is that we, too, we do live in a culture that tends to be more interested in the presentation than it is the content that is ever being taught. And, and I won't go into this. It's one of those things where you just pile on. But... Uh, You know, it is played out in our churches in this era in in amazing ways. And so I do want to warn you to to be wise yourselves, to prioritize the content of teaching you here over the presentation of it. It is better to be bored with truth than entertained with lies. And that's the warning given here, or rather in 2 Timothy 4, 3, and 4. I'll just read it for you. There he's writing and it says, Paul says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. And so then, silencing for the church isn't really mobster-like. You need to understand that. No one's going to be driven off in the trunk of Travis's car. Uh, no one's going to be fishing with the, the fishes. What it's talking about here is this, don't give a platform to these people to teach. Um, don't give an opportunity for them to teach within the church, to have a, a, a place of authority in that way. And then in verse 12 here, uh, there's this quote by a well-respected philosopher of the time, a man who was from Crete, Epimendes was his name. Uh, it's a fairly harsh saying, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Uh, it's odd when you think about that, if someone had said, you know, Kansans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons or Americans or wherever it is you're from, you know, you kind of get the idea of just how harsh this statement is. And Paul immediately confirms this statement is, is true, which, of course, if you're looking closely, runs us right into the liar's paradox. You know what the liar's paradox is. If what Epimendus said was true and he's a Cretan, doesn't that immediately make what he said now false? You see that? Sorry, I was a philosophy major. Maybe you missed it. Don't do that. Don't go all philosophical. The point here is simply that 
the reputation of the Cretans here is not that uh, it's the reputation of the Cretans. It's not that every single Cretan all the time is constantly lying. Um, to be honest, you know, I, I've been in this text all week, and over and over again, I find myself wondering why, Paul, why did you write this? And, and the best conclusions I've, I've come to is that Paul was incredibly hangry at the moment of writing this and frustrated at the Cretans. I, I, I can't make sense out of why this insulting thing is just put here in the middle, but, um, but it is. And it's coming off of a reputation that we understand uh, about the Cretans, and that's really what he's getting at. You know, um, you know how an individual can become kind of representation of an, of an idea? Um, take, for instance, Benedict Arnold. Uh, calling someone Benedict Arnold is the same as saying you are a traitor because of the infamous ge uh, general who betrayed his country. And uh, uh, in college, in fact, I didn't know what that name meant for a long time, but uh, in college, for some really stupid reason, a bunch of friends and I had this broken washing machine, and you start to think, well, what should we do with this? And the simple answer is put it out on the street corner so someone will throw it away, but we decided instead we're going to drive it to the middle of campus and we're going to stick it in front of this, this big statue. Uh, so we went to go do this, and suddenly security showed up, and we knew that wasn't good, so we all scattered in completely different directions, uh, about 10 of us, and we all make it back to the house, and we're safe, and we're good, except for one guy's missing, uh, this guy named Ben. Uh, ben had been captured by campus security, and Ben immediately ratted us out and took campus security to our house to introduce them to us. And uh, so we had to have some meetings with, the, with the, someone in authority later on at the uh, college. But from that day forward, his name was no longer Ben. His new name was Benedict Arnold. In fact, I don't think I ever referred to him as anything other than Benedict Arnold from that moment uh, in his life. You know, good morning, Benedict Arnold. Are you going to class, Benedict Arnold? That was his existence from that day forward. And so uh, the general idea here then, as Paul's talking about this, is that the Cretans have this reputation for lying, and, and, and that is proving to be this common reality with these false teachers and with these people who have been led astray by the false teachers in the church. And so now at this point, you've you, you got to see, because you tend to think this is all one person, but he's referring to a different group of people here than he was in verse 10. Because, and we know this because rather than silencing these people like before, we're told that we are to rebuke them with this goal, and it's a wonderful goal, that they may be sound in the faith. So they're not, they're not completely wandered off, you know, rebuke them so that they'll be sound in the faith. And, and the group he's speaking to then are, are Christians who are being led astray by the false teachers, and, and this is a way to restore them. And so then, from this point on, we, we see two results of the false teaching that occurred. I've mentioned them to you already before, legalism and license. Uh, remember, legalism is this strict adherence to rules in the hopes of, of proving your righteousness before God. Uh, typically, it is uh, legalism adds to the actual commands of God. It takes what God says and then stacks up a whole bunch of other things included in there that are not part of God's word. Uh, in this case, the distinguishing way that they were seeking to earn their salvation was to have circumcision, uh, which, of course, God has not commanded here. Um, today, then, we, we see legalism in a whole lot of different ways, and I want you to understand this in our context as well. Um, something like when people pridefully point to their righteousness before God with a statement like, I only listen to Christian music. 
you are certainly welcome to only listen to Christian music. That's part of your freedom. That's great if you want to do that. But that doesn't make you righteous before God. And legalism, here's the thing about legalism. Legalism does not work. It doesn't work because no one is redeemed by legalism. No one is sanctified by legalism. No one grows closer to Jesus Christ by legalism because that's not the fuel for the Christian life. You know, just like, like Mountain Dew, you know, it's, you drink it, it gives you energy, but that's not the fuel for your automobile. And so if you take Mountain Dew and, and you put it in your gas tank, it, it does not move your car forward, it ruins it. That's what we're dealing with here. In our text, it even describes these legalists as those who turn away from the truth. You see that turn away from your truth? Can you, can, can you picture this? Uh, uh, in John 14, 6, Jesus is speaking and he says, uh, I am the truth. That's one of the statements he makes there. I am the truth. And when we turn to legalism, we are turning away from Christ and towards some certain behavior that is our hope for redemption. You see, legalism continues here to stay in focus. Um, look at, when we look at verses 15 and 16, and here we're also seeing wicked's, or legalism's wicked uh, opposite, license, right? On the one side, legalism. On the other side, license. And so uh, it starts with this, this seemingly circular statement. You see it there, to the pure, all things are pure. Sounds very cent- or circular. Uh, the word pure here, though, is being used in, in two senses. We do that often. Uh, in the first case here, it's talking about someone who has genuinely trusted in Jesus Christ, those who have, uh, who, those who have been made pure by the blood of Christ. And in the second instance, pure is used in a moral sense, right? Uh, what is acceptable and right before the eyes of God. And, and so he's saying to the Christian, it's proper and right for you to enjoy the good gifts of God in pure ways. Um, we get a, a little better idea that of, of what the circumcision party is teaching in, in 1 Timothy 4.3. I'm going to read that to you so you can see it too. It says, uh, it tells us that they forbid marriage and they required abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And, and then in the very next verse in that Timothy passage, Paul sets this issue straight when he writes this. He says, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Um, you know, let's, let's just consider one common um, idea today, some example, alcohol. Um, people have strong opinions about alcohol, but alcohol is not corrupt. It is not evil. It's part of God's good design for his people, for his world. Uh, the problem with alcohol, then, is, is that corrupt men and women use alcohol in corrupt and sinful and impure ways. See, God's, God's word teaches us that, that drunkenness is sinful, without a doubt, without a doubt, for the Christian, for anyone, uh, it is sinful, but, but a Christian who's 21 is absolutely free um, to have a beer, to drink a glass of wine, and to do so expressing thanksgiving to God for it. And I know, depending upon where you are in life, that might sound very strange to you, and that's why I, I want you to see this. So, <clears throat> um, you know, in, in general, there is so much in this life that is a good gift of God. Um, and as those redeemed by God, we ought to be thanking God constantly for it. And if you think about these things, we tend to have this sacred-secular divide. And, and yet, you ought to be thankful for, for the concerts you were able to attend. 
You ought to be thankful for um, pure sexual relations and marriage, for, for the peanut butter and steak taco that they serve at Taco Lucho on Tuesday. You ought to be thankful for that. It is wonderful. Or, or for the joys of, of tailgating on Saturday with friends before a K-State game, or, or that laughter that just springs up when you're with friends and you don't know why, but it's just enjoyable. Um, you know, as those who have been united in Christ, we can and we should, with purity and thanksgiving, enjoy all the good gifts of God. And, and John Stott puts this beautifully. He says this, he said, We should determine then, to recognize and acknowledge, appreciate and celebrate all the gifts of the Creator, the unique privileges of our humanness as we were created in God's image and appointed His stewards, the joys of gender, marriage, sex, children, parenthood, and family life, and of our extended family and friends, the, the rhythm of work and rest of daily work as a means to cooperate with God and serve the common good, and of the Lord's Day when we exchange work for worship, the blessing of peace, freedom, justice, and good government, and of food and drink, clothing and shelter, and our human creativity expressed in music, literature, painting, sculpture, and drama, and in the skills and strengths displayed in sport. And so to the peer, to those who are in Christ, all things are peer. And then goes on to write quite the opposite, taking us in a different direction. He says, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. The point being there is, is literally there is no action that you can do or abstain from that will make you right with God. To use the, the same example as, as before, to abstain from alcohol or, or secular music, you know, does not make you right with God. So if your, your faith is, is not in Christ, if you do not have union with Christ, you, you can't expect that you're going to be made right, righteous or right with God simply by some form of asceticism, some form of self-denial. And then verse 15 then explains that those who are defiled and, unbeliever, or and unbelieving, stating further, it says, both their minds and their consciences are defiled. See, our, our conscience, conscience is, is like a moral compass. It's our, our understanding of what's right and what's wrong. And, and that term defiled here means, means spoiled. I don't know, if you look it up in the thesaurus, you'll see this. It means spoiled. It's like milk that has sat out in the sun too long. It's, it's no longer good. You know, even, even though the unbeliever may hear and have some understanding of, of right and wrong and some idea of it, they, they won't be able to truly accept it. You know, you, you look at verse 16 here. It says, they profess to know God but they deny him by their works. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Those, those aren't my words. I want you to know that. They, those aren't my words. Those aren't the words of some, some legalistic fundamentalist either. These are, these are Paul's words. And, and through inspiration, these are the words of, of God. Um, this is, you know, abusing freedom in Christ, which is commonly referred to as license. It, it's kind of like someone saying... Um, I know that the Bible says such and such, um, but I just kind of believe something different anyway. Or, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. I, I know that the Bible only permits sex within marriage, but I just think if two people love each other, then it must be okay. Tell me you haven't heard that. Or, uh, you know, I, I know the Bible says revenge is wrong, but there's no way I can really let her get away with this, right? 
You know, in, in other words, what we're seeing here is our, our actions display our true beliefs. Whether we want them to or not, they, they do. And, and if I believe that life begins at birth rather than conception, is that going to affect my, my ethics, the way that I, that works out? Absolutely. Absolutely it will. As a nation, we have always seen philosophy come before policy. That's the way it goes. You know, if I believe that, that Scripture teaches that lust and thus pornography are wrong, is that going to change the way you, you fight those temptations? It, it certainly should. And, and so what's the difference then in, in this text? If we're looking at this, what is the difference between the pure and the defiled, as we've seen in these last two verses? Well, they, they're both professing verbally that Jesus is their Lord. And in fact, it's possible that the defiled know just as much, maybe even more, about God intellectually here. And so the, the difference, the one difference we're seeing here is that those who are labeled here defiles and unbelievers is that they deny God with their actions. We used to, to do this hike at a, a camp we helped run. Um, and in the early years, it was uh, the, typically the hike was this follow the leader type of hike. You ever been on one? Uh, the leader would walk, and we'd make our interns do that because we didn't want to. Uh, and if they walked over a picnic table, everyone in the line behind them would walk over the picnic table. And if they walked through the river, everyone in the line would walk through the river. Um, and, and you could see that. Uh, you know, it, it, and one of the things you realize as you watch this is the people in the line, they, they never matched the leader perfectly. Always different things, a little left, a little to the right, jumping, talking, turning around. So many different variations. And, and, and yet, even from afar, you could, you could see who was actually on this follow the leader hike and, and who was actually going the other direction to the camp store uh, to do something. And what I'm saying is that none of us will follow Jesus perfectly. But, but, but we certainly ought to be going in the same direction that Scripture is calling us to. Because it gives us different priorities. You know, it, it, it means saying no to things that would bring shame on, on the name of our Savior. And it means saying yes to some things that are going to make you seem really strange in our culture. Now, I'd be hesitant to make the judgment Paul makes here, uh, particularly on someone by observation, but uh, Paul doesn't hesitate at, at all, not even a little bit. Paul even renders this sort of condemnation on people in this category. He says they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And, and the reason for this is that they, they say with their words they know God, but they deny Jesus is their Savior by their actions. Jesus, in, in Matthew 7, said, You will recognize a, a fig tree by, by the figs on, the, on its branches. And, and his point was that real spiritual fruit results from real God-given faith. And now, here's the thing. You hear this. I, I know it's hard to hear. It likely feels absolutely condemning. That's how I've felt it. You know, e even more, we might feel that when, when we read 1 John 2, 4, and I'm going to read it to you. Uh, it says, whoever says, I know him, God, but does not keep his commands, uh, commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So, so I'll ask you, you know, if, if you're feeling quite inadequate and, and fearful right now, let, let me assure you that, that grace is available to you no matter how far off or, or close you might be. 
And, and so I ask you this question, you know, how do we re respond to this? Um, I think we, we begin by honestly evaluating our own lives. So, uh, 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Um, it, it may be helpful even to invite someone you trust uh, to help you evaluate your life as well. Ask for uh, you know, an assessment. You know, where, where am I? Ask for this feedback and begin to examine yourself. And, and, and this is not an exhaustive list, but let me give you a few things to consider. You know, some of these questions you might ask, am I, am I trusting in, in Jesus and, and not my works? Um, secondly, am I, am I growing in obedience to God's word? Not am I perfect or as good as they're doing, but, but am I growing? Um, am I quick to confess to God and, and repent when I, when I fail? Or, or have I become so used to my sin that I don't even notice it? Uh, I don't even feel the weight of it anymore. Another question, do I, do I love other Christians? And that seems kind of off topic from what we've been talking about, but 1 John 3.14 teaches us we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, and it's talking about other Christians. Uh, four, do we see the fruit of the spirits? Galatians 5, 22 and, and 23 list them off. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, in, in all this, we, we've got to recognize that actual change is, is a goal, and that means that we must be seeking the Lord and, and asking him to change us. Uh, there's a guy named John Hendricks. You probably haven't heard of him. Not many people have. Uh, but he was commenting on uh, just how comfortable Christians are with their sin today. Too comfortable. And, and this is often done in this name uh, or this idea of, you know, I'm just being authentic. And that's kind of how it is. And his response or in this book, Accidental Saints, he wrote, Sadly, it seems that many of the new postmodern Christian authors think that being authentic and transparent means that not only do Christians fail, but we are to be proud of our failures and, and openly acknowledge them as just who we are with no intent, with the help of God, to live otherwise. This may have the appearance of being authentic and transparent, but it is, in fact, the most non-transparent of all. Why, you ask? Because the person who does this is, is hiding their true identity, that they're counterfeit children of God. I mean, listen, to, to fail and to be sinful is human in this fallen world. But that's where the gospel offers us something, something so much greater. To, to fail and to be sinful and also to, to look to Christ for forgiveness and strength to walk in faith and sanctification. That's what it means to be human and to be Christian and to be a child of God. And so if you're, you're disappointed with, with where you're at right now, um, the beauty is you don't have to look far down the line. You know, in, in these moments, you can speak to God and repent and confess your sin and ask for the indwelling spirit to give you strength going forward to, uh, to, to honor God with your words and your deeds. And, and so then, I, I do want to mention this too. I, I want you to resist, you know, be careful. Resist this temptation that you hear uh, of texts like this and, and you just think to yourself, be better. Okay, I'm just going to be better. What, what I mean is you've got to be looking to Christ, not yourself, because, you know, if you desire to be pure, there is wonderful news for you. The scriptures teach us that we become clean, not by cleansing ourselves, but we become clean by being covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. 
So go there. Go to Christ. Okay, we're almost, we're almost done. Uh, what do we learn here today? Number one, truth matters. You know, no matter how, how tasty that chocolate mousse pie looks with that crispy crust and the whipped cream piled high, you're going to want to know if the ingredients of that pie include rotten milk before you take a bite of it. Truth matters. Reject what is spoiled, what is false, and be nourished on, on what is true and, and pure on sound doctrine. Um, we also learn here that legalism must be rebuked and license must be corrected. When legalism says you cannot do this, you need to hear the gospel which tells us this is either God's good gift to be used with thanksgiving according to God's good design or that it's sinful and I, do not, uh, and I need not do it because God is better than whatever this sin is promising. When legalism says you, you must read your Bible every day, the gospel comes in and, and, and counters with how amazing is it that I can hear from God and his word today. When license says it's no big deal to sleep with your boyfriend, the gospel counters saying you need not sleep with your boyfriend because Jesus is enough for you and has a far better design for sex in your life. You've got to see that sin is constantly making these promises of joy and escape and pleasure and satisfaction. And all of those promises are short-lived and ultimately lies. Meanwhile, the gospel exposes those lies and points to where true joy and refuge and pleasure and satisfaction can be found. And that is in Jesus Christ and his ways. Um, many years ago, John Calvin preached on this text, and he concluded with, the, with these words I want to read to you. I found them so helpful. I think they'll be beneficial to you as well. Uh, and, and then we'll, we'll be done, and we'll pray here, okay? He says, Now let us fall down before the face of our good God, acknowledging our faults, praying Him to make us perceive them more clearly, and to give us such trust in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that we may come to Him, and be assured of the forgiveness of our sins, and that he will make us partakers of sound faith, whereby all our filthiness may be washed away. Let's pray. Abba, Father, we thank you for giving us in your word that which we need to know for life and godliness. God, we desire to be fit for good works, not because we believe it will make you love us, but because we know that you have already loved us in Christ and you have shown it by your work on the cross to redeem us from our sin. Grant that we would find joy in pursuing you faithfully. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen.